Hi, everyone. Welcome to Fatal Error. I'm Chris Zombeck. And I'm Serge Conlon. And this week, we decided we were going to talk about the Ownership Manifesto. Uh, Sarush, what's the Ownership Manifesto? Oh, boy, you're just going to throw me right into the fire on this one. <laughs> um, so we so, gave ourselves homework to read the Ownership Manifesto and try to understand the Ownership Manifesto. Um, I was marginally successful. So, okay, so really, really high level, what is the Ownership Manifesto, right? This is right. a document that the, uh, that the Swift language team put out uh when 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 did they release this like months ago this is not a new um this is not a very new document but yeah it's a bit old it's i think about a little less than a year old yeah uh i think that sounds right so it outlines the swift team's like plans or thoughts about adding um a, a a different approach to memory management in swift that you can opt into for certain kinds of programming where uh the sort of reference counting model doesn't quite cut it um is that that that's a fair description i think yeah i think so um the parts of it there are a lot of parts of it that i didn't understand the parts that i did understand were basically we you know we write this code and we don't have that much control over when the retains and releases get get inserted and especially i think when working with collections and stuff like that you end up having two owners of the same object and when you have two owners of the same object, you may end up creating a uh, copy when you don't actually need to. And so this is about basically giving hints to the type system and to the compilers to say, hey, this is just a certain kind of reference, and it doesn't necessarily need to make a full copy because of X, Y, and Z reasons. Yeah, I think that's that's generally it. If Can I, can I take a stab at, at defining yeah, sure. the problem, too? For sure. So right now, the way that Swift and the way Objective-C works, uh, at least with, with Arc, right, um, is it assumes that anytime you're using an, uh, an, an object, anytime you have a pointer to some object in Objective C, anytime you have a reference to some, to some type in Swift, uh, that you have an, uh, what I, I would call an ownership interest in that object, meaning Swift will keep it alive for you. Swift assumes that you are an owner of this object and does that by incrementing the reference count. It, well, well, your reference to it is is alive, is in scope, right? Right, right. And in some cases, I mean, especially with value types, that involves not uh, that 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 that's not actually what happens because not reference counted. Like you end up making extra copies of structs um, because the compiler and the optimizer have to assume that you might do something that requires your own copy of this. Um, of this value has to assume that like you do actually want some sort of ownership uh, of of this value. And it has to like very conservatively copy things and very conservatively increment reference counts. Right. Yeah. It can't know otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad that you mentioned you had some trouble reading this or understanding this full document because I did too. I read like various parts of this document several times and um, still came away a little bit fuzzy on, on some of the details and I think that's because it's a pretty like in the weeds, like language and, and compiler sort of engineering document. I think like there are a lot of details and I don't think that it actually does a great job of introducing high level concepts. Um, so yeah, can I go over two things that really helped me get, I think, some of the higher level concepts here? Yes, absolutely. So in some Googling earlier today, I found a, uh, someone, um, whose GitHub handle is Gankro? Gankro? Alexis Pinegesner. 
Oh, yeah, Alexis Bangesner. Bangesner. <laughs> uh, I'm so sorry. Uh, put together a a really uh, a really nice uh, TLDR on the ownership manifesto that I think distills some like the the important high level points and some of the important details into something that's way easier to understand. And uh, I actually went through, um, and I, I haven't really been, I haven't really used Rust very much at all, but I went through the Rust programming languages manual and read the section on, uh, on ownership and on borrows, which are there, which is Rust's approach to solving, um, to solving the same problem. And that did a really good job of going through the, like, going through the problem and going through the sort of core concepts and going through the Rust languages solution um, in uh, in a good amount of detail, but like in an understandable way. And then I was able to go back to the ownership manifesto and go back to this TLDR and kind of have a better idea what's going on. Um, and we'll, we'll include links to all of these in the show notes, but if you're really trying to understand this, like I was and like I still am, I definitely recommend this approach. Like, read through chapter four of uh, the the Rust language manual that we'll put in show notes, and then go ahead and read the Swift Ownership Manifesto. So, for a little bit of context, how much Rust have you written? I've written approximately maybe five lines of Rust. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. It, it may be the kind of thing where if you don't write any Rust, because I remember trying to read this back in the day when there were just whisperings of like, oh, Swift is going to do a new memory management model based on Rust. So I tried to go back and read that stuff, and it was completely inscrutable to me. So It I'm, might help to read some, to be able to read and write a little bit of Rust before you read that. Maybe, although I also... So I'm reading, uh, it says in a red box here, I'm reading a draft of the next edition of the Rust programming language, so maybe things have gotten better. Gotcha. I know that the Rust community has been putting a lot of effort into documentation, um, and into like really helpful compiler error messages. And if you're reading through the, uh, through this manual, you'll see some of those error messages and it's, it's really nice. So, right. Backing up. If you're reading this, you'll see like Rust doesn't use reference counting the way that Swift does. Um, Rust pretty much just has like, uh, val- just has values and objects that are on the stack or that are partly on the stack and have pointers to memory in the heap and, um, everything in Rust is managed through this ownership model. Do do we want to try to do a high level overview of what an ownership model actually is and how that contrasts with reference counting? Yeah, I think that makes sense. So, like I said earlier, with reference counting and uh, with like the way that Swift handles value types with fairly uh, conservative and 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 uh, pessimistic copying of value types under the hood. As value as values get passed from scope to scope, and fairly conservative reference increments as um, as, as references to objects are passed from scope to scope, that obviously can be inefficient depending on what you're doing, and it's possible with Rust and under the like the the um, strategy outlined in the ownership manifesto for you to more directly tell the compiler and the optimizer what code uh, sort of owns a, a piece of data at any given time. And that means that that code is uh, is the code that's responsible for like getting rid of that data, deallocating that data, um, or deallocating the like underlying memory if that's necessary. Or um, if we're talking about like a, a file handle, like closing that file handle at some point in the future. And we do that by, uh, or, or this proposal suggests doing that 
by adding a few um, keywords to the language, mainly, that you don't have to use. But if you're writing code that can benefit from this sort of thing, you can use to say, hey, I'm giving this other function this piece of data and sharing it, but I'm retaining ownership. Or uh, a function can say, hey, I take a piece of data in and I take ownership of this data from this other, from the code that that is giving it to me. And uh, there's some some requirements that come along with that that we'll talk about. This is the law of exclusivity that that they mention. Uh, but that's sort of the the overall I idea is just to let you be more explicit about who about what piece of code about what scope owns um, underlying data or underlying memory or some shared resource at any given time. And that lets the compiler and the optimizer like not make these conservative assumptions that may result in um, a lot of reference counting overhead or a lot of like copying values overhead. Yeah, that's a lot of talking. Did that make any sense? No, it definitely made sense. I'm curious about one thing, um, which let's just dive in. They're, they have this shared keyword and you can describe like a function argument as shared, right? You can say, well, when you give something to me here, it should be shared. Does mm-hmm. the, is that kind of like a like an unsafe reference? It's like, I'm going to work with this code, but I'm not the owner of this thing? No, it's not like an unsafe reference because um, if you pass something to a function that takes a like shared uh, parameter, mm-hmm. then uh, that that thing is immutable. So that function can't mutate that shared parameter at all. Gotcha. And in fact, you're, the code that is sharing that, that is like retaining ownership, but sharing that that value or that reference... Also can't mutate it. Also can't mutate it. And that goes to the this, this law of exclusivity that they describe fairly early in the document. Gotcha. We should definitely come back to the law of exclusivity. But definitely. So there's, there's basically owned, which is um, the like default... Uh, of like every parameter is basically owned. You could write it explicitly, but you don't have to. Then there's shared, which means um, I'll read from this, but I won't write to it, right? And then there's also in out, which continues to behave the same way as in out does today, which is not only will I maybe mutate this thing and need my own copy of it, but I also may mutate this, like the reference itself. Exactly, yeah. So in out still behaves as before. And owned is just like how everything in Swift works today, more or less. Gotcha, yeah. And then shared is just, I promise I won't mutate this, I just want to look at it. So one example they give in here is if you're defining equal equal for two values, you can describe that as shared. And because you don't need to do anything but, but look at it. Right. And in fact, it's not just that you promise you won't modify it while someone else has a handle to it. The compiler and the runtime will actually enforce that immutability property. Right, that makes sense. Yeah. So, can now that we're we're sort of dancing around the edge of this, do you want to go over this the, the law of exclusivity briefly? Yeah, I think that's really important. So, so they propose adding this law to Swift that will apply to all Swift code, but will um, really only affect ne- it will only negatively affect very little Swift code that exists today. To let this notion of ownership play nicely with like the existing Swift language. They have a law of exclusivity, which is a little bit uses phrases like storage reference expression and da 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 da. da. But basically, what it means if you you have like a reference or a value, then either exactly one uh, one like object can have a can be able to write to that at any time, and no one can read from it, or 
as many people as you want, as many objects as you want can read from this reference. Uh, or it, there's a third leg of this, right? Well, so before we, I, I think that um, that TLDR just that you brought up is like a really, has a really, really good example of the law of exclusivity. So the kind of close to the top of the TLDR, they give an example. It's a function called foo, and the first parameter is an in-out x, so it's like ampersand x, and then with closure, and that closure also modifies x. And so because you can have both the closure and the in-out modifying that reference, and you can see how that could like possibly um, corrupt some memory or do something really bad, that's mm-hmm. just not allowed anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. Yeah. So basically, like, if you try to pass the same thing to a function twice in a mutating way, whether that's via a closure or via an in-out parameter, it will just say, nope, you can't do this because you're, you're messing with too much stuff. And nobody really writes code like that right now anyway. So right. it's fine. I think some in this document, they call out that, like, most of the code that exists that currently that violates this law, um, because it's not a law yet, is probably right. wrong in some way. Right. So yeah, sort I can't of, imagine a situation where you'd ever actually want to write this code. Yeah. So yeah. so the sort of intuition here is that anytime you have like multiple accesses to the same variable, the same bit of memory going on, uh, those all have to be reads. And if you ever want to write to something, there has to be one possible writer uh, and no possible readers. And that'll be enforced again for just across all of Swift, not just for code that's using these ownership features. Uh, But it, that probably won't affect you. Yeah. And they say it's both static and dynamic enforcement. So like it'll, it'll check it at compile time. And if it's like not sure about it at compile time and it runs and you try to touch the same thing twice, it'll just crash. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and somewhere they call out that while that dynamic enforcement might catch things like uh, concurrency bugs and and data races, it's not guaranteed to do that. That's not really what we're trying to do here. So it's right. worth drawing a distinction here that like we're we're not talking about these things uh, like magically taking care of concurrency bugs. Like you still have to write correct concurrent code, and this isn't going to help you a ton while you're doing that. Right. I feel like I understand this a lot better now. I'm glad. I feel like I've. I feel like I kind of have a somewhat intuitive understanding about it now, but I'm like really flailing trying to like ex- trying to articulate it. Yeah. No. The thing that was that was good for me was when the saying like when something is shared, it just means it's immutable and read only. Yeah, and it's like it, the it reference count doesn't get incremented, or if it's a uh, struct, it doesn't get copied. Right. It just, right it's because it doesn't need to be. Exactly. Yeah. Because the the external scope ensures that it stays a valid reference and the internal scope is knowledge change it or read from it or do anything but read from it yeah uh so that's that's really what we're talking about here that's i think the biggest takeaway Uh, yeah so uh, later in the document they get into um non-copyable values which are something that doesn't exist in swift at all today and something which I'm a little bit fuzzy on still, but um, I can I can try to take a stab at this. So, yeah, go for it. So you might have something that represents, uh, let's go back to say a file handle, right, or represents access to some resource where there actually is only only one of this resource. Um, unlike a struct or even like a cla- an instance of a class, it doesn't make a lot of sense to like copy that. What like. Um, like might happen in Swift today, 
where you might pass your like file handle class um, or an instance of your file handle class into some other function. And now like both functions have some, have an ownership interest in that instance of the class, right? That doesn't really make really intuitive sense. And now it may be a little bit ambiguous, like who's responsible for, for making sure this file handle goes away, right? Um, or, or gets properly closed out. And so they propose adding um, non-copyable values. So these would be um, just at a really, really high level, like values or structures or, or classes, like types that can't be used with like Swift's normal ownership uh, model today. They can only be used with these new uh, like ownership semantics that we're talking about introducing. So you, if you have a type that's not copyable, you can't just like pass it to another function that implicitly tries to copy it or implicitly tries to increment its reference count. You have to explicitly say, I'm sharing this in an immutable fashion, or I'm passing ownership of this to this other piece of code now. And so this uh, oh, the manifesto proposes adding this sort of type uh, with a few special keywords and proposes adding a few uh, global functions to... Uh, to help deal with these kind of semantics. And this is a, like, I don't really have that much. Yeah. Don't have that much else to say. That's another thing that is discussed in this, uh, in this manifesto. Yeah. Um, the way that they do that stuff is they kind of like define a function that takes a T and returns a T. So like it just works with any value and, um, they call it move or they call it copy or whatever. And they, they like add, secret extra semantics to it within the compiler itself, which I kind of think is a bit of an ele- inelegant solution. Yeah. That was one thing I, that I saw. I was like, yeah, it's like, if you're going to add a keyword, that's fine. It's clear that you're operating at the language level. But if you're going to add a function that just like tells the compiler magic stuff, like I think we have that right now. Like we have like numeric bit cast or whatever. We yeah. have other, other functions that kind of just do weird stuff. Um, they're just free functions that just chill out, but it just seemed a little bit like not fully baked yet. This part of the document. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, it seemed weird when I was reading it, but like thinking about this, how else do we implement something that like tells again the compiler and the the reference uh, reference counter ownership like checker uh, and the optimizer like now now this uh, you know that this this instance or this value is like being moved elsewhere, like ownership of this thing is being transferred. Like that's not really a standard library sort of thing. That's something that like affects compiler behavior. It affects the code that gets output. Right. I don't disagree with that. I don't think it should be in the standard library, but I also like like a magic function in the, the, the compiler secretly understands like, like when you're working with the keyword, you know, this is like, clearly a language level thing because I'm working with a weird keyword. But if you're working with just a function that just has special semantics, struck me as a little bit weird. It's not necessarily the worst thing in the world because like, I think 999 out of a thousand actual application developers will never touch this stuff. Oh, absolutely. I think this is pretty clearly a step toward their like stated goal of Swift being able to be used for you know, sort of lower level and, and high performance computing. Well, and like, too. you know, I think they're going to use it in the standard library, for example. Like, I think it'll make sense there to make, let's say if, if equal equal gets a little bit faster because you can re- remove two retains and releases, then like that could make a lot of things a lot more fast. I mean, 
That, that's a good point. Yeah. Like your applications will certainly benefit from this when, you know, once this is actually built into the language without right. you necessarily knowing about it at all, which is yeah. kind of cool. So you're, you're, you're kind of asking like, how else can you, can you handle this stuff if you don't want to add like sort of a, a function that the compiler knows to add special semantics to? Yeah. I mean, yeah, basically I, I get, I, I kind of can see what you're saying. I guess if you're saying I, that it's weird that there are things that look like normal functions that have different semantics. Right. Yeah. Um, can I talk about a highly academic language that actually may shed some light on some of this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's called Pony. And they actually had a lot of this stuff, and actually maybe even a little bit more powerful stuff, like maybe a year and a half, two years ago. Um, and I think Rust, and, Rust had this stuff back then, but like, it was it was definitely like very very academic and like there were like papers about it and stuff, but the way that it works is that every reference that you make, you kind of have to declare it as uh, with like kind of a um, a capability, and so that capability is like ISO for isolated or there's like six of them total I think, one of them is tag one of them is val, and e- each of these each of these sort of keywords are they call them reference capabilities and they tell you what you can do with a specific reference. Um, whether you can read to it, write to it, or neither, and whether you, you can do that locally or globally. So there's six of them if you make that like cross-product. Um, and so if you build that into the language, their claim is you can never have a data race, you can never have um, like a deadlock, you can never have uh, basically any of these concurrency bugs that we're so used to having. They just are inexpressible because the type system will see like, hey, you're going to be mutating this thing from two places globally. I'm just not going to let you compile that. So this is interesting in for for a couple reasons. Uh, and I read the specific article that you sent earlier, which we'll throw in the show notes as well. Um, first, it's worth noting Pony is an actor-based programming language or an actor model programming language. So it's designed from the outset for this sort of highly concurrent right uh, programming and so it makes sense that the like type system and the compiler and its system of references like takes this into account and so i was obviously trying to read this article pretty quickly right before we recorded this episode and don't have any familiarity with the pony programming language but i got kind of lost trying to keep track of the different use cases and different reference types in my head um while i was reading and i think it's important here to call out that like while you can get more and more wins in terms of correctness by like shifting more, um, basically shifting more, um, I don't know if complexity is quite the right word, but shifting more complexity into the type system that also like makes the language a, a bit less approachable and a bit harder to learn. And yeah, a little bit. And, and it, and well, and it does that right from the outset, right? And Swift is first trying to do this and maintain backward compatibility and trying to do the whole like progressive disclosure. Uh, right. I, I'm not saying Swift should do it like this. And and Swift did have its own things where it kind of pushed the pushed the limits of what normal programmers expected, such as like optionals. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I mean I think you only have a certain budget for that, and Swift spent it on optionals, generics, enums with associated t- associated values, stuff like that. But if you did want to go a step further, you could look at something like Pony. And I think the way they handle it is pretty interesting. There are six of these, and I don't necessarily understand all of the sort of reference capabilities, but there are some that are really obvious, right? So, like, ISO means um, isolated, and it just means I'm going to read and write to this, and nobody else is allowed to touch it. 
right? And if that's the case, you know that it will always be safe because mm-hmm. it um, can't be touched by anybody else and you're the only person who's ever touching it. Um, and then another one that's interesting is what they call tag, which you can't read to or write from, which is crazy. But it basically means that all you can access is the identity of the data. That's the only thing that you're allowed to know. So you, all you can basically check is like, is this thing, that thing? And so like, if, all, if that's all you need from the reference, then you know, a lot of different things can touch that data without having to worry about it. And then there is a similar thing to, you know, the sort of shared thing that we talked about where multiple global and local readers can occur, but writing is not allowed. And so as long as you strictly, um, as long as you make sure that you don't attempt any operation on a uh, reference that doesn't have that capability, then you know you're going to be fine because it like, and the compiler, of course, won't let you do that. So it's, it's an interesting approach. And I think it, it's like a it's like a more hardcore version of the ownership manifesto is what it feels like. Absolutely, yeah. It's like I the mean, ownership manifesto, but with everything, and even perhaps even a little bit, um, a little bit harder to understand at the outset than Rust. Yeah, which, yeah. Um, but you can imagine a world where you know now we look back on the days of like oh anything could be optional and you just had to deal with null all the time, um, and you never knew if something was null or not. And you could look back on that and be like, oh, you were just allowed to mutate data from any thread <laughs> and your compiler just let you do that? It's the kind of thing that like it'll show up in academic programming languages first and then hopefully it'll trickle down to your sort of like more mainstream languages. And, yeah. and we'll really be able to run true analysis on some of this more like crazy concurrent code where it seems really hard to be able to tell like what the code is actually doing or what it can do and like make states that we don't want to be in, such as data races, not expressible anymore. So I think that this ownership model in particular could help add some features and some analysis capabilities like that to Swift in the future if and when they get around to introducing a a, a proper concurrency model to the language, right? Right. You can imagine, for example, if they do a, a C-sharp style async await sort of... Um, uh, sort of of method of like running code asynchronously and waiting for some sort of result that maybe values their objects that get passed into something running asynchronously uh, have to be shared, right? And we and we'll, at that point we'll have the tools to enforce uh, this immutability property to enforce the law of exclusivity there. Right. And maybe that uh, maybe this plays into that somehow. I haven't really thought yeah. about that in much detail at all. It could, and and if you think about it, like. Like Swift does have some of these things already. Like if you have a private let, you know, there's nothing. So, so I think one of the things that Pony also guarantees is that any actor only has one thread to work on. But like, well, right. I mean, that's just how that's I, like actors. You have an actor, and that's a thread, and it does things and passes thing messages to other actors that do other things. And right, yeah, yeah. And then Joe, so, yeah. So the the way that we uh, got here was. Basically, we were wondering how do you basically change one of these reference capabilities to another reference capability. And so this blog post I linked in the show notes has a really good example of that where they have a uh, they have a string-to-string dictionary, and it's an ISO variable. And then they mutate it a little bit, and then they pass it into a TRN variable, which is, means some other thing. Um, and then they use the function consume on that. So that consumes that variable and makes it so you can't use the original one anymore and converts it to a variable of this new type. So it's kind of like in Swift, like maybe you make a, a struct 
like a var at first, so you can mutate it, and then you assign it to a let, and then it's like sealed, and then you can't change it anymore. So yeah. it's like the ability, and like Swift, you know, does have some stuff like that, and it's just like that, but more intense. Yeah, absolutely. And the more the more I think about it, I think that this blog post we're talking about with Pony is just an example of how their type system enforces their the concurrency model that they use for for actors in that language. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it would be a cool thing. Yeah. You, it's cool to bring it full circle to like, okay, how do we think about converting between these um, between these different reference types? And yeah, I'm still a little bit fuzzy on how that works potentially in Swift. I don't know if they really if that's really super outlined in the ownership manifesto. It probably is, and I just missed it somehow. Oh, I think that's what Move is for. Uh, I think that Move is somewhat is subtly different. It may be. A move function can be used to request an explicit move of a copyable type. Yeah, the copying stuff is different. Yeah, but that, but that ruins the, or, or not ruin, that unsets the like original reference. So I think right, that you right. still... I think I, you just can't. Maybe, I mean, yeah, I guess in a lot of cases it, it, may, it would just make sense that you couldn't. I th- well, yeah. I think that maybe you would use copy in this case, right? Um, if you have something that actually is copyable. Well, but the... Right, I guess then you can copy it to a new reference and the external scope doesn't need to know that you've copied it. Yeah, so it's worth noting that I I feel like this manifesto is a little fuzzy on these special functions and what they actually do. Yeah, one cool thing I would like to call out is one of the most practical ways I think developers are going to get advantage of this, even if they don't have to deal with it, is like when you are mapping over an array, um, right now what it does is it will get that value out of the array, make a copy of it, pass it to you, you mutate that copy, or no, you don't mutate that copy, but you return a new value based on that copy. And then it'll stick that new copy into a new array, right? Right. But with these new semantics, basically like it'll pass that to you as shared mm-hmm. and you like won't need like it won't basically make that extra copy before you do your thing with the map because right. it knows I am not escaping block. I'm going to um, pass it to you, and then you're going to do something with it. But you're not going to be able to like mutate it because it's already like it's a it's a function parameter, so it's not mutable. Um, yeah. And so it won't have to do that extra copy, and things will be faster just for like mapping. Let's say yeah, especially if you are dealing with arrays with like non-trivial structs in them. Like there's a lot of copying going on if you map a large array with you know structs of some significant size, right? Right. Because yeah. I, I get like again the compiler and the optimizer just have to be conservative, and this will let them be less conservative, and things will be faster. Yeah, should be cool. Yeah, I'm interested to see like once this lands, if like I'll ever actually write this in my code. Uh, me too. I mean, yeah, yeah, I. Uh, I have to think that there will be cases when it will be useful. Yeah, maybe like a sequence extension. Yeah, some. Yeah, you'll you'll copy the implementation out of the standard library. Like, let's say you want count where, uh, where mm-hmm. you pass a block and it tells you how many how many items in the sequence pass that test. Yeah, and you might like want to share it for that, just for a little more correctness. Maybe if you're uh, rewriting the audio engine in your podcast app or something like that, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, again, like. That sort of that sort of situation where you're maybe dealing with a lot of data and somewhat kind of a performance sensitive situation, like that's really the case where thinking about this in more detail 
is is really going to be useful. And again, like the common case, just whatever Swift code you've been writing is probably fine, and the optimizer does well enough, and things generally work. Right. This is something that you don't have to use, and I mean, it's here if you need it, or yeah. will be here if you need it. Hopefully, hopefully soon. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a pretty complex topic. I'm I'm really glad that we had a chance to sit down and and you you walk me through some of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping it, it is kind of a complex topic to to wrap your head around. I'm really hoping that I did an okay job of explaining it. Again, I really recommend reading through the resources that we've thrown, especially the first couple links in the show notes. Um, I really did. I, I really did find these resources very helpful in understanding what's going on. And uh, worst comes to worst, uh, you just listen to this podcast for 35 minutes and it wasn't too helpful. But eventually when this gets added to the language, someone will write something that's actually useful about it. So, <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, I think, it's, I think it's worth noting like the generics manifesto, the first time I read it, I understood some of them, but not all of them. And every few months I go back and reread it and I get a little bit more out of it each time. Yeah. And I think that's just like, you know, these are complex topics that they're, you're not going to get them right the first time. So you're going to have to kind of pound at them. Um, yeah. to get them right. And hopefully this this uh, podcast is one of those strikes of the hammer. Hopefully, yeah. And I mean, I'll come back and read this, I'm sure, in, in a couple months and realize that I said some wrong things on this podcast. And that's no, just how it fine. goes. Yeah, and I think it's fine. On that note, do we want to we wanna wrap up? Yeah, I think that's good. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to our podcast. Um, if you subscribe to our Patreon, we have uh, extra episodes, one extra episode for every public episode. So if you're wondering where all of the even-numbered episodes have run off to, they're in the Patreon. Uh, we would love it if you become a come, become a supporter, and you can get access to all those episodes there. And that link will be in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening, and Sarush, I'll talk to you soon. Yep, can't wait. <laughs>